Thank you, Chris. So as I mentioned early on, this is the fifth week of our series in the life of David. As we recall, the biblical witness says that David was a man who had the same heart as God. And so the survey, the the series is a survey of David's life to see how it is that David was formed and shaped to be this close to God, to have that same heart as God, so that we might also learn how to journey in our lives to be this close to God, to reflect the heart of God to the world. So far, we've looked at four people and events that have shaped David, right? To talk about Ruth, his great-grandmother, who had a persistent faith, and how that might have been a, a characteristic that flowed into the family. How we should be a people who are also persistent in our faith journey, our faith walk. We thought about David as the one who was selected by God to be the next king over the people, right? And that David was the unlikeliest of characters, the eighth son. And it reminds us that you don't have to be someone special. You don't have to have special gifts or be a special kind of person for God to use you, even the unlikeliest among us. God can use for his purposes. The third week, we we thought about what it took for David to overcome the giant Goliath and how David went out not only with the tools that he knew how to use, but that he went in faith that God would deliver not only him, but all of the people, right? And that how we need to go out in faith to serve God, that God will help us overcome giants that are in our way so that we might do God's will and way. Last week we talked about what it meant for David to serve a king who was threatening his life, who pursued him, who wanted to kill him multiple times, but in selfless love, David continued to serve Saul. And how in selfless love we can speak to power in our world. And we can transform the use of power in our world. These are the people and the things that so far have shaped David, help us understand how it is it reflects his heart, the heart that he has that is the same as God. This week, we're going to think about David's deep connection with Saul's son, Jonathan, right? To understand what it meant for the two of them to be so intertwined in one another's lives and how it can influence each one of us to have that heart of connection, the heart of God. As I mentioned on our prayer list was Reverend Dr. Keith Berry, right? When I started in ministry back in 1999, Dr. Barry was the district superintendent for the Kansas City North area, so the northern part of Kansas City. Our our districts have morphed multiple times since then, but that's where he was as the district superintendent. And at that time, Ken Lugent was the district superintendent through the mid part of the city, and then the south part of the city was a guy by the name of Amos Brown. Now, I don't anticipate that you'll know any of these names, right? But it's kind of interesting how this all works in our connected system. I remember that each fall, as a local licensed pastor, we would have to go in at that time and visit with the district superintendents. I was working at Aldersgate out in Lee Summit. I was part of a new worship service on Saturday nights. I did this part-time because I also worked in the business world at that time. But I remember coming into their office and meeting with the three of them, and Dr. Barry says to me, would you be willing to go serve a country church for $3,000 a year? Not at this time, Dr. Barry, but I appreciate the offer. Well, he upped the ante. Would you go and serve one for $5,000 a year? Not right now, Dr. Barry. I, I like being at Alders Guy 8. Margaret and I love being there. We like uh, the service that we're going to and the things that are going on. 
Well, Amos, who was my district superintendent, pulled me aside and said, I need to talk to you for a couple of minutes. He said, I've got an opportunity for you to go and serve a little church down called Community United Methodist Church. It's down in Chilhowee, Missouri, and it'll pay you $9,000 a year. Well, oh, okay, um, I, I, I don't know. He said, well, I, I've kind of got a need. The pastor that we appointed there the 1st of July faxed me his resignation this morning, and, and we need somebody to fill in, and, and I thought you would be a good person to go. So here's what I want you to do. Why don't you go home, talk to your wife, Margaret, about it? Why don't you drive down to Chilhowee and, and just see the city, right? Go drive around the town. And, and they've got a new church that's being built down there because their old church burned down. So they're in the, in the process of constructing a new church. They're meeting in a funeral home right at the moment, but they'll be out of it in a few months. Don't worry about that. But, but just go down. And if you'll go for a couple of years and love on the people... In a couple of years, we'll probably be able to find you an appointment back near the city area, right? So, so go do that. Go drive down there. And by the way, I need to know by tomorrow morning <laughs> the ways district superintendents operate, right? So I go home, and I'm telling Margaret about this opportunity, and we're talking about it. We begin our conversation with God. And then the next thing that we do is, is we get out a state map. And we start trying to figure out where in the world Chilhowee, Missouri is. Because neither one of us had a clue where Chilhowee is. Any of you know where Chilhowee, Missouri is? I knew Bob would because as a school superintendent, he's got a good idea where most of those are. Chilhowee, Missouri is down by Warrensburg, about five miles back to the west, ten miles south, at the intersection of highways F and 2. 323 people live in town with a local school that's there that's K through 12, right? So we drove down to Chilhowee that evening. We drove around the town a little bit. The guy that was building the new church was actually in the building, so we got a chance to stop off and look at the plans of what was going to happen and the, the church that was being built. We did not get a chance to go in the funeral home. That might have been a deal breaker if we'd have done that, but... We, we went down there and we looked around and everything like that. We prayed about it, called Amos the next morning, and I said, sure, we'll go. So that October, late October, early November in 1999, we went down to Chilhowee and served down there. Or two, about the year 2000. So now in the process of this, the, there was a, another thing that was going on that I didn't know was going to impact me the way it did. Our, our bishop at the time and her special assistant started recruiting a pastor from outside of the state to come and lead one of our churches that was in the same district that I was in and the district that Amos Brown was over. But they didn't tell Amos what they were doing, right? And so they convinced this pastor to take over this church. Now, in those days, that's not how our system worked. Our system was based upon tenure... In the, and, and moving kind of up the ladder of churches, right? And now we're recruiting somebody from outside of our connection in the Missouri Conference to come and take a church. Once Amos found out about this, he and the bishop got a little crossways with one another, and Amos retired at annual conference. Guess what that meant for me? My, you know, I said this, in the first service, we in the United Methodist Church pride ourselves on being a connectional system until your connection retires, right? 
So luckily, the, we, we were able to, to navigate through that. We spent almost two years at Chilhowee, and then we're able to move a little bit closer to the city. But I, I'm curious about this idea of connection and how each and every one of us view it, what we believe about our human connections and what we strive for in our connection with the divine, right? And how we are impacted, each one of us, differently by this because we connect a little bit different in our world today. Not all of us connect exactly the same way. I was listening to a a radio program last week that was talking about millennials and job interviewing in in, in the modern era. Now, this doesn't apply to all millennials, right? But it's a trend enough that they're beginning conversation to understand how the world is morphing around us, even in the area of job interviews. When I came out of the Air Force, I remember transitioning into the job world, and and as I was doing so, I remember diligently working on a thing called a resume, right? How many of you have ever worked on a resume? You remember that, right? Putting together a resume, and then you printed a couple hundred copies of it on just the right paper. And when you did your resume, you also did a cover letter and you tailored every single one of those specifically to the job that you were applying. You hand-signed those. You typed the address on the envelope. You put your own stamp on it. You mailed all of these out. And if someone called you, you answered the phone, right? Because if you didn't answer the phone, you might have missed out on a job opportunity in those days. And if you got an interview, you, of course, put on a suit, you went in, and in your face-to-face interaction, you did your absolute best to connect with the person that was interviewing you so that you could get a job. Sound familiar to any of you? Yes? A little bit? Right? Okay. Now, according to the news report that I was listening to, what I just described for you is passé. It's old school, dear friends, right? Recruiters and employers today are having to morph to new ways of conducting interviews with the millennial generation. The report stated that most millennials today will respond to a text quicker than they will a phone call. If you call them on the phone, they'll just let it go to their voicemail. If you text them, you're pretty likely going to get a fairly immediate reply from them. Right Now, us old school folks probably could be a little judgmental about the way the world is going, but about a decade ago, this thing came out. And if you've been listening to the studies recently, it's interesting the way this one little device right here has influenced and helped the world morph and change. Because 10 plus years ago, you didn't text. You answered a phone call. Today, people text. And they're more likely to answer a text, especially millennials, than they are to simply pick up the phone. Now that being said, I have also come to believe that in every single one of us are a set of base desires. They are innate within the human creature. And one of those desires is for us to connect with someone else And that knows no generational boundaries or lines of distinction. All of us want to connect with someone else. We want to deeply connect with someone else with no strings attached to it. To form a relationship with someone, as the proverb says, to have someone in your life who sticks closer than a sibling. To have a friend. 
That was the relationship between David and Jonathan. It was a powerful connection between the two of them that had no strings attached to it. No strings of family or marriage or any kind of duty or responsibilities between the two of them. They connected as friends, right? Now, you think about the story between David and Jonathan. It could have just as been as easily for them to be rivals as it was friends, right? Because of their circumstances. Jonathan was the firstborn son of the king. He was the heir apparent. David was simply a shepherd who was anointed by God. Jonathan was the brother of McCall, or was McCall's brother. He had blood relationship with her. They were royal family. David was the eighth son of a shepherd who married into the royal family. He was an illegitimate part of their family. Jonathan should have been the supreme commander of all of Saul's troops, but instead David was the supreme commander of them. They could have just as easily have been foes as they were friends. But they weren't enemies. According to the story, they were much more. They were two people who had an intimate connection. David and Jonathan, best friends. If you think about the story, here's how the connection between them goes. At a moment in time, right after David slays the Philistine and shares with Saul who he is and what God's vision is, for the people, it says that Jonathan immediately becomes attached to this person, David, and David likewise to Jonathan. There is a mutual love and care between the two of them. It says that Jonathan actually comes to David and gives David his own royal robe, and then he takes off his sword, his bow, and his belt, and he gives all of these possessions to David so that he might command Saul's troops. Now you think about that for a moment. Sounds like the covenant was pretty one-sided between David and Jonathan. Jonathan's the one who gives everything to David in this moment, but not so fast. As David prepares to flee the land, Saul's tried to kill him multiple times, and David's determined that it's time for me to leave the land. As he gets ready to leave the land, he and Jonathan have one final meeting together. And in that moment, it is David who comes to give. David falls prostrate in front of Jonathan. He does this three times as he bows before Jonathan. They stand, embrace, they kiss each other on the cheek as was custom of their day. The scripture says that both of them cried, but David cried the hardest in this moment. And as David and Jonathan departed, David made a covenant with Jonathan. He said to him, I will protect your family. From generation to generation, they shall have a place in my house from this day forward. When you get to the end of 1 Samuel, you'll read through some of the storyline of Israel, and it says that the Philistine army descends to attack the people of Israel again. And in this moment, Saul and his sons go out to war with the army because David's no longer there to lead them. On Mount Gilboa, the the battle begins and rages, and in that, Saul's three sons die. One of them was Jonathan. Saul is wounded by the arrows of the Philistines, and if you read the story, it says that Saul wanted his sword bearer to take his own sword and to thrust it through to him. Rather than being killed by a Philistine, he would rather die by his own sword, but his sword bearer said no, he would not do that. So Saul takes his own sword and falls on it. 
He impales himself in that moment. Shortly after the battle, it says that David receives word of Saul and Jonathan's death and he writes a funeral hymn for the two of them. And one of the lines of the funeral hymn says this, I grieve for you, my brother Jonathan, for you were dear to me. Your love was more amazing to me than any others. We know that David becomes the king. He unites Israel and Judah in this time as the leader. And then he keeps his promise to Jonathan. He seeks out Jonathan's only son, his son by the name of Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth is crippled and unable to take care of himself. In this moment, David restores to the son, Jonathan, all of his grandfather's property, all of his father's property. He gives it all back to them. He has one of the servants go out and maintain the land and give all the profits to Mephibosheth. But then he moves this crippled son into his own palace and makes a place at his own table where he is served and he dines with the king every single day for the rest of his life. The son of Jonathan becomes his own son. And the covenant is preserved from generation to generation. Their connection was personal. It was lasting. It was profound, not only for Jonathan and David, but for those that are connected to this story as well. I think this story tells us about God, who is one who is steadfast and faithful to the covenant that God has made with us, but also the calling that God has for each one of us to be connected in that way as well. We know that in Christ Jesus, God has become one of us, the lover of our souls, God desires to have an intimate connection with every single one of us. God desires for all of us to reside in God's presence, to feast at God's table now and in God's kingdom. God wants to honor us with the best vision that God has for our lives. God wants to care for us because we cannot fully care for ourselves the way God can care for us. But I also believe God wants us to feel this kind of connection with someone else. A connection that is beyond the strings of family and marriage and duty and responsibility. To have a friend that chooses to be in a mutual relationship with you. That will come and be there whenever. I was reading about friendship and a Baptist pastor in his sermon described friendship. This kind of connection in this way. This is how he described it and said. He said a friend is one who is a source of sunshine when you feel under the weather. A friend is one who believes in you when you cease to believe in yourself. A friend is a source of celebration when you feel like there's nothing to celebrate. A friend is one who answers your call before you call. A friend is one who walks in when the rest of the world is walking out. A friend will shake your hand in success and wash your feet in sorrow. A friend is one who comes to your house and makes you feel at home. A friend shows up in good times and in bad times. A friend nourishes your spirit when the world is sucking the life out of you. A friend will die before they'll allow you to go through hell alone. A friend will cry with you when others are laughing at you. A friend will not talk about you, but will talk with you. A friend reaches for your hand and touches your heart. Helen Keller once said that walking in the dark with a friend is better than walking alone in the light. The better part of one's life consists of one's friendships, according to Abraham Lincoln. 
Aristotle, the philosopher, said that true friendship is one soul in two bodies. Ralph Waldo Emerson, we all know, reminds us when he says that the only way to have a friend is to be a friend. The heart of God is about covenant-making and covenant-keeping, not only with God, but with other human beings. I want to know today, I want to ask you today, who are you connected with that enables you to share in this heart of God? As you think about it for going away, here's uh, your conversation points, some things to think about, discuss with one another. For us all to be reminded that we humans share in this desire to connect that's beyond the strings of some of our attachments. David and Jonathan are a model of this kind of friendship, one that is built on a mutual covenant of love and care, and that God invites us to have that kind of relationship in our lives, that one of mutual love and care, of covenant, to be steadfast and faithful, for this reflects the heart of God. So here's your invitation today for you to think about and pray over. Who is your friend? Who is that one person that you are connected to that's closer than a family member that you can call and know will drop everything and be there at a moment's notice? Who loves you unconditionally, cares for you, supports you? Or to flip the coin over, let's ask this question. Who are you a friend to? Who can call you, counts on you, knows that you have their back? Who would you lay down your life for? Communion, dear friends, is a moment this morning where we are reminded that God is the one who is a great covenant maker and the great covenant keeper. As I said earlier, the lover of our souls, the one who has demonstrated this love through self-sacrifice. My prayer this morning is, is that our moment of communion might provide healing of body, mind, and spirit that our moment of communion might cause each one of us to reflect on our need for this kind of connection and the need that others around us have as well. So I want to invite you